On Tuesday, millions of Americans are going to head to the polls and cast their vote for the person they best, they believe best equipped and prepared to lead our nation. And the political divide that exists in our country has always been there, but it seems now deeper than perhaps it's ever been. It seems like the only thing that all Americans can agree on is the fact that we are, in fact, as a country, divided. And in a lot of people's minds is this question. What brings us together? Is there anything anymore that unites us all as Americans? In an article in Time Magazine all the way back in 2018, a man named Frank Luntz asked the question, what is it that unites us? He writes in that article this, it's not just the policies we disagree on. Our worldviews often no longer overlap. For example, 62% of those in the One People poll still agree that America is a place where if you work hard and play by the rules, you can get ahead. But while an overwhelming 78% of Republicans embrace that sentiment, barely 57% of Democrats agree. We are only now realizing how large the space between the tribes is. He goes on in that same article to state, Our greatest strength historically that we the people share a common goal, idea, and even a national dream is now a glaring weakness. We cheerfully slice the ties that once bound us together. And it seems like from that article, it's a fairly gloomy forecast for the United States of America. But I think he's right, at least in one thing that he says, and that is, there's a difference of worldviews that's going on. And, and that's essentially why it's so difficult for two sides to come together on anything, is because they're approaching from two different worldviews. Let me ask the question right here of this group. What is it that brings us together? What unites us? Now, I imagine if we press the issue, we might find that we disagree on some things. We would probably find that maybe even on issues of politics, we have slightly different opinions on things. Uh, maybe we would find that we have different preferences or interests. So what is it that draws us all together? certainly not the support or lack of support for a single political candidate. Well, we understand that as the body of Christ, the gospel is what binds us together. That's it. That's the key. The gospel binds us together as God's people. There may be other things we agree on, and I imagine there probably are. If we started to talk, we probably would have shared interests and similar ideas. But at the deepest level, I am your brother in Christ, not because we share some interest in common, but because of the gospel of Christ. It is the gospel that binds us one to another. It was the gospel that bound Paul to the Philippians. Their relationship was built upon their faith in Christ. And I think that's one of the reasons that Philippians is such a profoundly upbeat letter when you read it. Because Paul is sharing with them this common salvation. It's a letter of rejoicing because of their full participation and cooperation in the work of the gospel. The gospel that has saved them. This morning we're going to consider Philippians 1, verses 3 to 8. And this is part of Paul's introduction to the letter. In fact, if you read other New Testament letters, you'll see this, that Usually it starts with an introduction where Paul identifies himself and his audience. And then usually there's a thanksgiving 
Sometimes it's a prayer of thanksgiving for his audience. And that's what we see here. This is fairly standard as that goes. Look at verse 3, in fact. Philippians 1.3 says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. There's the thanksgiving. So a fairly standard introduction. He's thankful, though, that they share a bond in the gospel. And by the way, that's the same bond that you and I share if you are a believer in Christ. The gospel is what binds us together. And because of the gospel, we are knit together in some very important areas. I want to highlight those from this passage. Because of the gospel, we are knit together first in a common goal. We are knit together in a common goal. You know, being united in faith does make us a family. It makes us co-sharers in God's grace. But you know what else it does? It also makes us co-laborers for the gospel. Just as the gospel makes us brothers and sisters, it also makes us teammates, working together to achieve a common goal. Let me say it like this. Not only are believers united by their faith in the gospel, they're also united in their work for the gospel. This common goal is set before us, and we see that here in Philippians chapter 1. Let's read together verses 3 to 5. It begins, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Let's dissect these verses together. We see here first the, the cause for thanks, thankfulness that Paul has. The cause for thankfulness. He says this in verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. So every time that the Philippians returned to Paul's mind, he gave thanks to God. And he says this about other churches as well. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 1, Colossians 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2. So what's the cause of thanksgiving now? Well, it's his remembrance. Every time he remembers them, he's thankful. That's what calls it to mind. Whenever, whenever he's reminded of the Philippians and their faithfulness, he prays and thanks God. And we ought to know a couple of things about Paul right here, starting in verse 3. First, he was a man who was characterized by prayer. Paul was a praying man. Uh, we know that from other places as well, but here his prayer is characterized my heartfelt gratitude for God, to God, for the Philippians. Uh, he refers here in verse 1, I thank my God. Uh, kind of makes it a little more personal, doesn't it? He doesn't just say, I thank God, generally. But he says, I thank my God. And you, you kind of almost have a feeling here that you're getting a glimpse into Paul's prayer life. That as you read this verse, it's almost like we're listening in on Paul's prayer closet. He says, I thank my God for these Philippians. You know, this this personal prayer that he's offering up. Second, though, Paul prayed to thank God often for his Philippian friends. He says this, I thank God upon every remembrance of you. We'll, we'll come back to that thought in just a moment. Notice also that he was remembering them. Now, here's the thing. Verse 3 could be translated in one of two different ways. It's either talking about Paul thanks God for every remembrance that he has of the Philippians, or it might be saying, I thank God every time you remember me. And I'm not sure we need to make a strict 
line between the two. I think, though, that Paul is saying, I am thankful for every remembrance of you, not every time you remember me. And by the way, when he says, you remembering me, he's probably thinking of their gift. They had sent him a gift. But I think he's talking about his remembrance of them. He had not forgotten the Philippians. He had not forgotten any of the churches he had helped to start, or any of the believers that were uh, close personal friends of his. He's thankful for them. He remembers them. This is pretty incredible because Paul knew a lot of people, didn't he? Uh, he had started a number of churches. And so there's a lot of people on his prayer list. So the fact that he says he remembers them, I think this is personal. Uh, I'm certainly thankful for times when people have remembered me. You know that feeling of uh, you see somebody you haven't seen for a while, and you're kind of like, I, I don't know if they remember me. So you kind of walk up and you, you try to introduce yourself in a way that's sort of like, hi, do you remember me? But you don't want to make it too awkward because if they don't, you don't want to make it seem like they should have remembered you or whatever. Well, a couple weeks ago, I was back at a conference in North Carolina, and I saw a student that had graduated the year before me. Uh, he had gone off, and I, I had not seen him since he had graduated from seminary. He had gone off to uh, study in the United Kingdom, got his PhD at the University of Durham, and was now a church planner in Bonn, Germany. And he was there at the conference. And I, of course, remembered him, but there's always sort of this feeling of, hey, remember me from when we were in students together? Of course, it wasn't that long ago. But he remembered me, and we, we had a great <coughs> conversation talk. It's, it's always nice when somebody remembers you. I remember uh, hearing a very sad story one time. I was talking to a guy who had started a church in Utah, and was there for, I think, 10 years, building that church and establishing it. Finally, when it was healthy, he moved on and took another church. And so I asked him, I said, well, how's that church back in Utah doing? And he said, I don't really know. Because after he had left, another pastor had come in, and they had sort of severed ties with the founding pastor and had not kept in touch. That wasn't Paul and the Philippians. They, they had lost touch with one another. He was remembering them constantly. So we see the cause of thankfulness. We also see the continuity of thankfulness. Paul is always remembering them in every prayer. Uh, you'll see this also in verse 4. Always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. It's this ceaseless thanksgiving, the ceaseless prayer that Paul has for the Philippians. Again, I don't think that Paul's prayer for them and his thankfulness for them is generic. Sometimes we do that. We pray generic prayers. The Lord bless the missionaries, bless our nation, bless you know our church. And that's not wrong. Don't get me. I'm not trying to say that's a wrong prayer. But I don't think Paul's mess prayer was just Lord, thank you for the Philippians. I think he went down through it. Thank you for Lydia, that wonderful woman who opened her home to me to one of those missionaries, Lord, bless her. Help her with the many challenges she faces every day. Lord, I pray for that Philippian jailer and his family who trusted Christ. And I think Paul probably knew their struggles. And so I think his prayer and his thankfulness here was not just generic, it was personal. He remembered them perhaps by name. These people were dear to him. And so he's constantly thanking the Lord for them. We also see the characteristic of thankfulness, though. 
in verse 4. He's always in every prayer of mine making requests for you all with joy. That's the characteristic. Joyful prayer. Joyful thanksgiving. So you can imagine Paul's list of, of his prayer list was probably very long. You know, he was praying for the, the church, the believers in Ephesus and Rome and Thessalonica and Corinth and Philippi. But I really think that as he looks down his prayer list, he probably has a smile on his face because he's, he's giving thanks and, and making requests with all the joy. After all, when he looks down at his prayer list and he sees the Philippian church and, and all the names associated with it, he looks and says, I remember, I remember that person bought with the blood of Christ from the very dregs of society, from the, the stain of sin. God saved that person. And I can just see a smile stretching over his face. He remembers each of those people who he loves. And he's filled with joy. And joy is one of the themes of this book. This whole letter of Philippians is just oozing with joy. Everything Paul says is tinged with this smile on his face as he recounts with joy his thankfulness for the Philippians. We'll also, though, see, and I want to land on this, the content of thankfulness. The content of thankfulness. What is it that makes him so grateful for this Philippian church? Well, look at verse 5. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. This church had partnered with Paul. They were working together in the fellowship of the gospel. They were united in a common goal, making the gospel known through their testimony and through their lives. They were teammates striving together for the gospel. But look at verse 5. It says, for your fellowship in the gospel. That word fellowship is such an important word that I think there's value in stopping and thinking about it for a little bit. The word fellowship appears all over in the New Testament. And here's the translation of the Greek word koinonia. Koinonia. Perhaps you may realize this, but the New Testament is written in koine Greek. It means common Greek instead of the classical or high Greek. Common. And that's the root idea of koinonia, common. Something in common that a person or a group shares. It's this commonality. But also, koinonia was used for business partnerships. We spoke last week about Procter and Gamble. As those two came together, they formed a partnership. And that's how this word koinonia was used in New Testament times, for people who would come together, pool their resources with a common goal. Theologian D.A. Carson defines this term, koinonia, like this. He says it's a self-sacrificing commitment to a shared vision. Self-sacrificing commitment to a shared vision. And this was Paul's relationship with the Philippians. Partners, partakers in the work of the gospel. They had a shared goal to make Jesus known. Not only that, the Philippians had partnered with Paul financially. They had sent a gift, and later on in this letter, he thanks them in chapter 4, verses 14 to 18, for their financial contribution. And I'm very grateful that there are people who will share their financial resources to support the work of gospel ministry. As we came here, and, and still this day, uh, have those who stand behind us as supporters. 
and, and so does everyone that serves with Midwest Church Extension. And so I'm grateful for those who commit themselves to partnering for the work of the gospel. But it's not just financial support that Paul is thankful about here. He's thankful that they, as a church, have invested themselves, that they are partners with him in that gospel work. And I think it's more than just they gave some money. It's that they were invested in that shared vision, that common goal. And their partnership, he says in verse 5, was from the first day until now. So from the time that Paul had arrived in Philippi and that he had ministered there until this very day, they were like brothers with him, serving shoulder to shoulder in the work of making the gospel known. I already mentioned D.A. Carson. He writes elsewhere this. What must tie us together as Christians is this passion for the gospel, this fellowship in the gospel. On the face of it, nothing else is strong enough to hold us together. The extraordinary diversity of people who constitute churches, men and women, young and old, blue collar and white, healthy and ill, fit and flabby, different races, different incomes, different levels of education, different personalities. What holds us together? It is the gospel, the good news that in Jesus, God has revealed himself and reconciled us to himself. This brings about a precious God-centeredness that we share with other believers. So the, the gospel binds us together in this common goal of making the gospel known. We are on the same team, fellow laborers in the work of the gospel. I remember a few years ago, there was an incident that took place at the Cincinnati Zoo. A young boy fell into a, a gorilla enclosure. And in order to save the child, uh, the zoo made the decision to shoot and kill the gorilla. You might remember this. This is a big deal about it. Uh, when it all happened, I looked up the name of the gorilla. The gorilla's name was Harambe. And I didn't know what that meant or where it came from, so I looked it up. Turns out it's actually, and this is the point of the illustration, okay? It has nothing to do with the gorilla, per se. But the word Harambe is a Swahili word, which means let us pull together. It has the idea of everybody grab a part of the rope. It's like you're on a, uh, uh, a team where you're trying to pull the other team across. You know, um, tug of war. Tug of war, thank you. <laughs> and uh, you're all grabbing that rope, and we're all going to pull at the same time. That's the picture of Harambe. Let's all pull together. I think that's a good picture of what Paul's talking about, the fellowship of the gospel here. Grab the rope. We're all participating in this. We are all part of this because we have one common goal. Not only are we knit together in a common goal, we're also knit together in a confident hope. A confident hope. You see, what Paul has just described is what God is doing through the Philippians. That God is, through the Philippians, doing this work of fellowship in the gospel. But now he's going to switch to talk about what God is doing in the Philippians. In verse 6, listen to what it says. Being confident of this very thing, that he who begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So people who are bound together in the gospel not only share a common goal, but a confident hope, a destiny, a future with Christ. So Paul's thankfulness includes what God is doing with them and through them, but also in them. Now, how do we get to verse 6? 
what's the transition? There's two possibilities here. So verse 5 says your fellowship in the gospel, which that word fellowship might also be translated partnership. And so one possibility is that Paul is saying in verse 5, we are partners in the gospel. But don't be mistaken, we're not partners with God. God is the one who does it all. From start to finish, it is his work and he will complete it. I think there's a better explanation, though, about the transition happens. And that is, verse, the end of verse 5, he says, from the first day until now, we've been partners. Well, okay, they've been faithful from the first day until now. But what about the future, Paul? Are they going to finish well? says, I have every hope and every confidence that they will. Why? Because it's God who's at work in them. Again, let's look at verse 6, and let's try and zoom in on the verse and get a sense of what's being said here. This confidence he talks about is a confidence that you and I should have. And it's a confidence that we can have because of the gospel. And it's based upon three elements. First, it is based upon God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. Look at verse 6. Being confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will complete it. That he is emphatic. He, God, is the one who began this good work. It is God who will finish the good work. You see, if it was up to us, chances are we would run off the track at some point, right? We would fall into the ditch. But it's God who begun the work and God who will complete it. That's why, you know, you can have places in the New Testament talk about, you know, I have confidence that God will present you blameless and faultless before his throne on that last day. How can any of us have confidence we're going to make it to that last day? Because the gospel is not about how well you performed. It is the work of God in saving us. It's that good work. It is God himself and his faithfulness which is at stake. And here's the great thing. God finishes what he starts. See that here? He who has begun a good work will complete it, will bring it to fullness. I don't know about you. I'm not particularly great at always finishing what I start. I've got a lot of books I've started. I probably have at least 10 books right now that I have read the first chapter on. And they're sitting there waiting to be read. And someday I might get back to them. Some of them after the first chapter I don't really care to get back to. But the fact is, all of us have that tendency. We, we sometimes jump into something and then it sits around for month after month after month. And sometimes we never get back to those things. Now, there are people who are extremely... That they always get back. They, they can't move on to something else until they finish the first thing. But here's the wonderful truth. God finishes what he starts. Sometimes I see some, a project that was started and never finished. First, it's a construction project. A house will, will start to be built, and then they run out of money, or some kind of complication or problem comes along, and it just sits there. And you always drive past, and you think, I wonder what happened. You know, they obviously started... But they didn't get it done. For believers, we have this confidence that God will finish what he starts. So we have that confident hope. If, if my hope was in me, that I was going to somehow make it to the end, unspoiled, blameless before the throne of Christ, that would be a weak hope. 
very good. But if it is God who does the work, then it is a strong and confident hope. So we see this, and we have this confidence because it's based upon God's faithfulness. Also, it's based upon the good work already in progress. The good work already in progress. You'll see this in verse 6. I'm confident in this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. So this good work is already started. It's already ongoing, in progress in the lives of the Philippians. Paul looks at them and says, I see that good work already happening in your life. And that's what gives me confidence of your having believed the gospel and that God will carry it to its finish. See, that good work was already in them. Now, here's the question. What's the good work? Some people have tried to say that this good work is nothing more than the Philippians' kind contribution to Paul. I think, though, that this, this was begun in them by the Lord, and it's carried on to the last day, to the day of Christ Jesus. I think it's their redemption is this good work. After all, redemption is something that when we are bought with the blood of Christ, we were redeemed. But the Bible also says we're waiting the final day, the redemption of our bodies, it's called in Romans chapter 8. So this redemption, this good work is already true about us. We have been redeemed, but we are awaiting the redemption of our bodies when we will be made like Christ. It's the same thing that Paul talks about later in Philippians in chapter 3. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly wait a Savior from there who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. So the good work is started, our redemption, our salvation, but it awaits the future fulfillment. And that's what we look forward to with confidence. So Paul looks at them and he sees the fruit that, that they truly are redeemed. He sees that in their life and he says, because I see that, I have confidence that God will complete it and that you will be made perfect on the day of Christ Jesus. And that's the last element in which our confidence is based is the day of Christ Jesus. He says that here in chapter 1, verse 6. It's a very interesting phrase. A lot of times the Bible talks about the day of the Lord. But here he substitutes the day of Christ Jesus. Now, really, that's one and the same, right? Because Jesus Christ is Lord. So both would apply. But when you read about the day of the Lord, it's usually talking about judgment, isn't it? The day of the Lord is the day when God's wrath is poured out and he judges the nations. It also includes glory for his people and all of that. But typically when you see the day of the Lord, it's oftentimes talking about judgment. But when you see day of Christ, it's almost always talking about the reward that his people, the church, will receive when Christ appears. Paul uses the phrase at least seven times. And of the seven times, five of them are clearly talking about the day when the church will receive its reward. So this is a hopeful thing. When he talks about the day of Christ Jesus, it's not sort of a dreaded anticipation of, oh, I hope, I, I hope I'm able to stand on that day, but rather an expectation, a hopefulness that we are going to receive the reward of faithfulness given through Christ. Not because of our good works, but because of Christ. The gospel is what binds us together in a confident hope of future glory. The gospel is that clear message that we are all sinners. That we have fallen short of God's glory. That we are condemned. 
but that God did not leave us in that state. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to die on the cross for us. And in dying, he took upon himself our sin. He became sin for us, the Bible says. That whoever believes in him, who puts their trust in Christ, will be saved. And when you talk about trust, it's talking about leaning oneself. Leaning your whole weight upon something. So when we trust in Christ, we are putting our whole hope, our whole confidence in eternal life in Christ, saying, Lord, save me. That's the gospel message. That's what binds us together. That's what bound Paul to the Philippians, this confident hope they had. But finally, we are knit together also in a close affection. Close affection. Now, this does not necessarily mean that you go around and hug everybody else in your church. I know some of you guys might do that, which is fine. But it doesn't necessarily express itself in physical acts of affection. What I'm talking about here is a genuine, heartfelt, biblical love between believers. And this is what we see from Paul all over the New Testament. He expresses his love and genuine, heartfelt Concern for the churches and for believers over and over again in his writings. Now, I'm not sure if Paul was the type of person who went around giving hugs to everybody. But there could be no doubt in the Philippians' mind that Paul, in fact, loved them. Look at what he says in verse 7. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. Stop there. I have you in my heart, he says. It's right for me to feel this way. It's right for me to be grateful and thankful to, to God for you because of this close affection I feel towards you. And actually, some translations will say it is right for me to feel this way about you, but really it means it's the, the literal translation is it's right to think this way about you. Right to think this way. Because thinking precedes feelings. And so Paul is justified in thinking this way, and his feelings follow along. But don't miss the fact that he does have feelings. He says, I have you in my heart. And that heart is talking about the center of affection, of love, of emotion. In fact, the next verse, verse 8, says, God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Paul loved these people. He felt strongly for them. Philippian church was not just another church to him. It wasn't just a, a statistic or an achievement. They were people whom he dearly loved. In fact, they had stood with him in his hardest times. He says that in verse 7. Inasmuch as both in my chains and defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. His chains, defense, which is the Greek word apologia, his confirmation, those are all terms that he's in prison and he's standing trial because of the gospel. They are sins right there with him. Partakers of God's grace. And that's the phrase I want us to land on here. You are all partakers of grace with me. It's that same word, by the way. It comes from the same root, koinonia, fellowship, partnership. You are partakers with me of grace. See, that's what did it together. God's grace. They have been saved by the gospel, 
and they were in the ministry together of making that gospel known. And this resulted in a close affection that they shared for one another. This is such a such an affectionate letter of Philippians between Paul and that, and that church. We are weak as a church are knit together in this affection because of the gospel. Now you might say, well, Reed, you've been telling us over and over again at different times that love is not a feeling, it's an action. So isn't it, it alright for me to act loving towards one another? Why do I have to feel a certain way towards people in our church? Well, it's true that love is an action. But biblical love always produces feelings. And if we choose to, to love, then feelings will follow along. So let me just say that if, if you feel nothing towards anyone else in your church, there might be something wrong. Because the expectation would be that we would have this kind of close affection because we are knit together by this bond of the gospel. This morning we sang a song titled, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. The lyrics were written by John Fawcett. Fawcett was a Baptist preacher in England in the 1700s. He ministered at a small town of Waynesgate. It was a humble, very small parish not a lot of money, not a lot of uh, fame to John Fawcett for serving there. In fact, they could sometimes couldn't even pay his full salary, and so farmers would give him and his family potatoes to sort of supplement them that they could get by. Well, one day, a call was extended to John Fawcett from a very prominent Baptist church in London, offering him the chance to come, receive a, a very fine salary, be recognized, be in society, not in the little town of Waynesgate. Well, he and his wife Mary prayed about it, sought the Lord, and decided, yes, we're going to go to London. Well, the people at Waynesgate were heartbroken. They had come to love Fawcett as their pastor. They asked him to reconsider. Well, on the day they were set to leave, they had their wagon, they were loading their items onto the wagon to, to head off to London. And the people of the church came by in tears to see them off, to wish them farewell. As they saw the tears of the, the church people, Mary turned to her husband and said, I can't stand it, John. I know not how to go. He responded to her, Lord, help me, Mary. I cannot stand it either. We will unload the wagon. We've changed our minds. We're going to stay. And they did. John Fawcett served for 54 years town of Waynesgate. During that time, he wrote the song Blessed Be the Tie That Binds, and I encourage you go back and read the last verse of that song with this story in mind and see what you think. Perhaps it was this story that influenced him to write. You see, there was a man who was knit together with his church because of their common bond in the gospel. That's the, the theme that comes across to us here at the beginning of Philippians. The gospel is what binds us together. And I want to close with a few lessons, four of them. If you want to take note of these, number one, our relationships should be characterized by the gospel. If it's the gospel that binds us together, if it is the gospel that knits us as one, our relationships ought to be characterized by the gospel that unites us. 
What characterizes the gospel, you ask? Forgiveness, grace, mercy, kindness. So does our relationship to one another reflect what the gospel looks like? Is, is my relationship to you characterized by grace, by kindness, by mercy, by forgiveness? You see, our relationships ought to be characterized. They have to look like the gospel. Not just because we're connected and that's where it stops, but rather we should be characterized by it. Secondly, superficiality will not do. Superficiality will not do. If we are, in fact, bound together by this gospel, then we ought not to just pass as ships in the night or simply carry on our relationships on the superficial level. What are we talking about when, when we see one another? Is it just, how's your health? How's the weather? Or do we care? And, and do our relationships go deeper than just the surface? If it's the gospel that binds us together, they ought to go deeper. Third, we will be closest to one another when we are serving together. We are closest to one another when we are serving together. Striving together for the sake of the gospel. Sometimes I hear this from people. Somebody will say, well, I went to that church, and I never felt close to anybody. Nobody ever really got to know me, and I just kind of was there, and, and I didn't have any meaningful or, or deep relationships. Okay, well, how were you serving? Well, it turns out you find out they, they really weren't serving. They were just there. I found to serve together in the ministry of the gospel is, is the best way to build the kind of relationships that mean something within the church. So if you're saying, I feel kind of alone, I feel like I don't, my relationships are, I, I don't really have relationships, or they're not deep. My encouragement is, well, get involved. Start serving with somebody else in the work of the gospel, and you'll find yourself forging relationships that are meaningful and deep. We'll be closest to one another when we're serving together. If, if we're not having closeness, maybe it might be that we're not serving. And then fourth, nothing should ever, or should I say forever, disrupt our relationships. After all, the gospel is brought us together as brother and sister, family. Nothing ought to disrupt that forever. Now, I know sin will. When we sin against one another, it causes disruption in our Relationships, And that will happen. But what does the gospel, a gospel-centered people do with sin? Confront it, repent, forgive. And that's what ought to be true of our relationships. If we're characterized by the gospel, then nothing ought to disrupt us forever. You know, there are no irreconcilable differences between believers. There's no problem that cannot be solved by coming together and putting the gospel of Jesus at the center. Not for two believers. See, we be called together, bound together as a family. I close with this story. In 1979, Willie Stargell was a star player for the Pittsburgh Pirates. He was, that year, in 79, he was the National League MVP, he was the championship MVP, and he was the, super, uh, the uh, World Series MVP. The only player to ever do have all three. Stargell was respected by everybody on his team. He was well-liked as a baseball player, including 
being a terrific hitter. As they went into the 1979 World Series, Stargell was the leader of the team. In fact, he was known by his nickname, Pops. And all that year, the Pittsburgh Pirates were known as The Family. The team was called The Family. Their walk-on song was, We Are Family, right? Well, that year, the team was so close that they had that common goal. They had that close affection. They had the confident hope, not of eternity, but of victory. Here's what Willie Stargell said about that year. He said, we won, we lived, and we enjoyed as one. We molded together dozens of different individuals into one working force. We are the products of different races. We're raised in different income brackets. But in the clubhouse and on the field, we were one. It's a good picture of what we ought to be as the church. We are one, united and knit together 